Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzones, and I'll be your host for the 13th delivery of Terrograms. In this dispatch, we are in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and are joined by Richard Foreman. Richard is Harvard University's Professor of Advanced Environmental Studies in the field of landscape ecology. He teaches in ecological courses in the Graduate School of Design as well as in the Harvard College. He's an American Association for the Advancement of Science Fellow and a recipient of the Lindback Award for Teaching Excellence. His research and writing include landscape ecology, road ecology, changing land mosaics, land use planning and nature conservation, urban region ecology, and more broadly, spatially meshing nature and people on the land. He has authored many articles, and his books include Landscape Ecology with Michel Godron, Land Mosaics, The Ecology of Landscapes and Regions with Edward Wilson, Landscape Ecology Principles in Landscape Architecture and Land Use Planning with Drumstead and Olson, and his latest book is entitled Urban Regions, Ecology and Planning Beyond the City, and is published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you for joining us at Terrograms. It's a delight to join you. You have a new book that will have hit the bookstores by the time our listeners get this. Um, it's entitled Urban Regions, Ecology and Planning Beyond the City. It comes out through Cambridge University Press. In the book, you compare cities such as Mexico City, Beijing, Chicago, Nantes. How did you come to move your research into the city or around the city? Why did you choose the cities that you compared in the book, and third part, um, how did you go about comparing them? Maybe the easiest way to start is to say that I'm an ecologist and that uh, inherently cities and urban regions uh, are not the kinds of places that ecologists love. When we do research in a house or a road or something comes close to our research area, we fold up our tents and go back into the mountains mm -hmm. or somewhere. And... For the last 23 years or more, I've been at the Graduate School of Design where I interact and teach landscape architects, urban planners, and many other interesting uh, people. And, and in that process, I've come to realize that uh, cities are very much a part of the present and much, very much more a part of the future. Uh, one doesn't have to go far and look at the United Nations Population Division data and show that today we've got uh, 3 billion urban people and in one generation, 2030, we'll have 5 billion urban people. Oh. And so think of the implications of that for natural systems such as water and biodiversity and recreation and food production and so forth. So about six years ago I was invited by the mayor and chief architect head planner of Barcelona, Spain to do a long range plan for the region around Barcelona, not the city but the region which was in that case about 60 kilometers radius and it has mountains, it has rivers and it has cities and towns and villages and food production and so forth and they wanted me to do this because they didn't want to lose the natural systems right around the city. And so um, I said, I'm a scientist. They said, not a planner. And they said, that's fine. I said, I've hardly ever been to Spain. They said, that's okay. I've never been to Barcelona. And they mm -hmm. said, great. <laughs> so I worked for a few years and published a book on that work in 2004, I think. And um, in effect, I, you know, I could visualize having spent 
30 years or more working in landscape ecology, the ecology of large regions, I could visualize how to do a plan like this. I had never done one. And so at the end of that process, I was hooked. I realized that, yes, indeed, the urban regions are really important to our future. And so in this new book uh, called Urban Regions, Ecology and Planning Beyond the City, I decided the way to go at it was to take uh, large to small cities on all continents. So I have Cairo to East London, South Africa, in on Africa. I've got Mexico City to Iquitos, Peru in the Amazon in Latin America. And I took 38 and I analyzed them spatially with these very large... Uh, uh, Landsat images on, down on my ping pong table, <laughs> and I would pour over these things and map and, and and measure the number, the distance, the amount, the shape, the size, and so forth. And then did scores of correlations of different spatial phenomena that have importance to both natural systems and human uses of natural systems. So, sort of a guiding uh, triumvirate of of uh, themes in this book, uh, the the region all approach rather than the city or the all all built metro area, the whole region. Which in this case, most of these are about seventy to eighty, and sometimes a hundred kilometer radius. Mm-hmm. And then the second was the natural systems in that area, going all the way from aquifers and water supply to food production and. Uh, and uh, other uses, and then the human uses of these uh, natural systems. They're very stimulating experience, uh, and indeed, the the region, the urban region, is uh, the characteristic that we should be planning in the future. The city just doesn't make sense anymore. The all-built metro area around it, which is the thing I actually see uh, almost always clearly on my Landsat imagery, also doesn't matter because they're so, the people in the city and metro area are so tied to the surroundings and so much depend on them for the future. Mm-hmm. And so it was the Barcelona experience that jumped you into looking at these these cities worldwide. Did you have chance to meet with any of the politicians or planners or um, ecologists uh, on these other continents? Uh, not too much. Uh, in, Bar- in the Barcelona project, uh, I say yes to all of those. I was working you know, with the mayor and with the chief architect, and they opened doors to, to politicians at various levels, to planners and designers. Uh, I reached out to many of the academics at the various universities, including ecologists. I went out with landscape architects, uh, worked with uh, urban planners. And I had a team of four people in Spain and uh, went over every 12 weeks or so, spent several days uh, working. In the uh, Urban Regions book, I simply decided that I was going to take these large and small cities on all continents and I, and I wanted to do it as usual in a book in two or three years. I don't want to spend the rest of my life on one book. <laughs> I do lots of books. Um, and so I, I decided the way to do it was to, to choose a large number of cities rather than doing case studies of one, three, or five mm-hmm. cities, which is a typical way in, in urban planning, 
And so I'm sort of somewhere between a scientist and, uh, and a planner. I'm somewhere mm-hmm. between having a large sample size I could do statistics on mm-hmm. or doing case studies that uh, go in depth in a few cases. So of these 38 urban regions, I've lived in about a quarter of them. I've visited another quarter, but what that means is I've never seen mm-hmm. half of them. Mm-hmm. So I, I gathered uh, information, uh, remote-sensed information, I uh, gathered uh, printed information from libraries and and some online sources. I talked to people from all these regions and showed them maps and asked them to correct things and tell me where things were. And um, so I decided in a t- to be a timely publication because I really feel this is important now. I moved ahead hmm. and did not consult with the you know, the politicians, the planners, and all these school, these uh, places. But I think that this will open people's eyes enough that, that hopefully people will begin to, in each individual case, mm-hmm. go back and look at the urban region of, of San, uh, San Diego, Tijuana, or, or um, Canberra, or in other places around the world. Is part of your aim to frame up a way of looking at these regions to prepare for growth? Or is it, or and is it also um, a way to create models or signify models both good and bad for growth? So to create a set of tools that are going to aid growth. The Barcelona Project uh, listed principles, and this book lists a lot of principles uh, from transportation, from hydrology, from landscape ecology, community development, and water resources, and so forth. And these are, in most cases, single uh, sentence, declarative sentences that are important, have widespread implications, and have predictive ability. So they are principles in the real sense of the word. And the way I envision, and the way I did the Barcelona Project, but the way I envision any of these cities is that uh, you don't have to relearn the wheel design each time you do one of these uh, urban regions, but instead you you have some principles. You know, an artist has some principles mm-hmm. that, that work. They know, time-tested. And you take these principles and then you spatially integrate them with the patterns of people and nature on the land. And so that's the way I did it. So that in, in this Barcelona and I... Uh, listed these principles, a lot of principles, in this new book. Um, and so that's a way of working. And so uh, growth is certainly a part of all of these regions. Uh, it doesn't have to be a part, but it is a part. Mm-hmm. And so it tells, it gives an uh, insight into um, where growth would be best focused and mm-hmm. places where it would be terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's a way of a way of approaching these things. And it's it's generic enough, that is, it's using principles that have been developed by many people in many places. It's generic enough that it'll make a plan solid uh, or a future solid, but it's not so specific that it's, that it is not, it's not detailed design, mm-hmm. that it leaves plenty of room for creativity, plenty of room for unique options, plenty, plenty of room for the distinctiveness of every urban region. Have you found certain cities, both small and large, that pose themselves as models of development in their existing state? Well, there's some well-known cases, that, small small cases, and some moderate large cases that have a lot of benefit. One of the things I did in the, in the 
38 urban regions, uh, people kept asking me as I went along, what's the best city and what's the worst city? <laughs> and I realized that's that... Little, that's a little lower on my list. <laughs> <laughs> that's a loser, so I decided I wasn't going to answer that in the book. But the way I did it instead was that I went through and in the in the last section of the penultimate chapter, I have a, a large section called Good, Bad, and Interesting Patterns. Mm-hmm. And they come out of the previous analyses. And so you can go, th- go to right to that section and you can find a whole lot of spatial patterns that are good, let's say, for water resources or for transportation or for biodiversity or food production. You can find bad ones. You can find some interesting ones where maybe the pros and cons are, some, are about equal or we don't know much about them yet. And so that it, those are put there so people can take good things and filter out some of the bad things and design their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I can go through, and I'm sure many people will go through those lists because I give examples mm-hmm. from, from different cities around the world. And they can figure out what some of the really good cities and some of the bad cities from from the point of view of the future, regional thinking, natural systems, and human uses. Let me just give you some examples. Um, Canberra, Australia is a planned city, well-known, planned by an American, uh, two Americans. Uh, and um, there are a lot of really nice things about that. There are also some shortcomings to that. So uh, London has a lot of good stuff. Um, there are some things that aren't so good about mm-hmm. London. Smaller cities like uh, Portland, uh, well, yeah, Portland, Oregon is another, has a lot of good stuff uh, and some shortcomings. Uh, Boulder, Colorado. I mean, there are familiar cases that are documented further in this. Will it be clear from reading the book and studying these cities which are the best examples? I want the the reader to to determine that for him or herself. The, the, the answer is yes. The, the reader that, that goes in and, and wants to do that I don't happen to think that's the that's the most important thing. To me, the most important thing is is finding uh, solutions for people and nature, spatial solutions that can be interwoven on the land that will provide a long-term future for natural systems and, and their human uses and people, including growth. And so, uh, yes, you can go and find a lot of good stuff about Canberra or the Woodlands, Texas, or Concord, Massachusetts, or Davis, California, or, or um, San Diego. Uh, but the, the value is to take what are those good characteristics, those good patterns, and take them to your own city mm-hmm. and, and, and try and avoid the bad, bad characteristics. Are you an objective interpreter translating this information, or do you feel the responsibility to put a, a subjective point of view and give the designers a bit more direction that they may not uh, come to? The, the bulk of the analyses that I do, and actually I should, this kind of leads in, maybe leads into why I came to the graduate school of design anyway as a scientist. But the bulk of the analyses are as objective as a scientist is. I mean, it's, it's no scientist is completely objective, but it's as objective as science is. But I pulled out for you that one place in the book where explicitly 
one makes a value judgment. That is the good, bad, and interesting patterns. And I pull that out, and that's my judgment based on the science before and the, the analyses before, which anybody can go back and evaluate. Well, this was well analyzed or not, but that's the way science works. Um, but but let me go back to, uh, if, if I could, why I came to the graduate school design anyway. Is that is that a useful thing to get? Yes. Yeah. Um, I spent my uh, first half of my career talking with ecologists and scientists and so forth, and yet increasingly, and, and publishing and uh, going through the, what all good scientists do, and uh, increasingly I was broadening my perspective. I was looking at whole landscapes and whole broad regions, that is an agricultural landscape, ecology, what you see out of an airplane window. Uh, I was looking at, at forested landscapes, suburban landscapes, desert landscapes, and I was uh, I was developing principles that work, ecological principles mainly at that time, that work in all landscapes. So when I came here, the, the, we had a wonderful chair. The man who hired me, his name was Lori Olin at, at, uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, just a, a dream of a person. Anyway, Lori... I asked him, well, how do you want me to teach this stuff, this science, to designers and planners? He turned to me and he said, he said, you teach high-quality science, ecology, and don't water it down. He said, I want this, the landscape architects and planners of the future to understand how ecologists think and what their principles are. And then they're going to be better designers. But if you give us watered-down ecology, they're not going to be very good designers. And he, he, further, he went on and said, and don't tell me how to design. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that underlies a little bit of my responses on this book. I, I'm trying not to tell people how to design rather than giving them the tools mm -hmm. and the principles and in a, a case study, the Barcelona case study is in the book in detail, of how I did it, how I designed that or planned, planned that. Uh, I was very much inspired, incidentally, in that Barcelona thing by by Antoni Gaudi's uh, Parque Güell and those wonderful trincades or, or mosaics of, of um, in the park, mosaics of broken ceramics and multicolored and so forth. To me, that was an inspiration that, w that was done 80 or more years ago and is still inspirational. And I thought, well, any plan you do for the region should should be sustainable. That is, it should last over human generations and still be valid and inspirational. And so after being at the GSD for a couple of decades, have you had to resist the design or the, the, the impulse to translate your uh, science into design? Not resist, no. But, but I have no doubt that in teaching, I use more examples of principles, the applications of examples in planning and design than I did when I started. Um, in other words, the students have taught me, and the, the, my colleagues have taught me, but I still try to be true to my science and true to my scholarship, and, and say because I feel I can be more useful. I don't want to become a second-class landscape architect or a second-class urban planner. That, that's counterproductive. I'm not that type of person. 
uh, uh, but rather I feel that the the scholarship that I've done, you know, from landscape ecology of large areas to the road ecology work that, that I've and both of those, many people, some people call me the father of landscape ecology or the father of road ecology. So I want to bring them to, to landscape architects and, and, and planners, uh, and many others. But I'm really speaking to a much broader audience in these books and in these studies. Uh, I'm really, I'm speaking to the transportation community, which I work with. I mean, I know leaders in that and I've published a book with some leaders and the U.S. and abroad. Um, I'm speaking to the foresters, uh, forestry community. And, and again, I know many of those uh, good people uh, and many other parts of society that, that because I really feel that we can do better. We haven't, we've been developing our lands and, and without real serious thought to the ecological um, attributes. And, and that's probably another reason I came here uh, years ago was I'd spent my life describing and analyzing and I came and the people who I met said, oh, well, you should come and you can describe and analyze, but you can also prescribe for society, tell society mm-hmm. what's good and what's mm-hmm. bad and so on. Um, and that's uh, that's the nub of which where I try not to do too much of that, but I have no doubt that I do some of that. Mm-hmm. The idea of space and form is very much, very much embedded in in your research. In your description of your teaching, you state that it includes spatial meshing, spatially meshing nature and people on the land. Um, does nature have clear patterns that we need to be extracting into human growth, or? Is human growth patterning nature? Um, clearly, this isn't binary, but could you speak a little bit about the patterning of both nature and human human growth and human use on the landscape? Uh, yes, I mean it's a very very good question and and one that that I'm constantly uh, chuckle about as I go down the hall periodically and see products of reviews on the wall and being presented. Because I've heard more than once that that natural patterns are amorphous mm-hmm. and that human patterns are form and shape and so forth. And I just, well, I mean, that kind of a comment uh, is water off my back. I used to get uh, exercised about it. Now I've just decided, well, if a person feels that way, then probably there's not much hope unless I can have a chance to talk with a person. Uh, but an easy way to think about it, think of a river that's flowing down a floodplain um, where it flo- has a fairly steep slope in, in the hills or mountains or so on. It flows more or less straight. It has curves and sharp bends sometimes because of rocks and other things. But it's moving fast, has a high velocity, and it's cutting the land. When it gets on a, into a lower slope area, then it begins to meander. So it goes round and round and so forth like that. Uh, and we can tell exactly the, the so-called sinuosity ratio, the point at which it goes from a eroding stream to a, to a meandering stream where the, the length of the stream uh, over the length of the valley 
uh, is uh, greater than 1.5 means it's a meandering stream, and it do- and it functions differently when it gets beyond that point. Anyway, well, there's, the meandering stream has very obvious forms, and very and you know, and it moves around across the across the floodplain. It leaves oxbows and lakes of very obvious shape. And I, I could go on. And nature makes forms all the time, and they're well known and well documented. Um, now. Planners and designers make forms and make shapes all the time. And so I have a slide that I use in some of my classes, and, and it shows uh, some of the forms that nature makes. So they tend, and this is just an example, that they can be irregular, they can be finely textured, they can be aggregated, they can be uh, convoluted, margined, uh, they can be different size, they can be fractal, and so on. These are all well-known spatial patterns of nature. And then what I've done is I've, made, I've listed the patterns that I see most commonly in the designs and plans on the wall in, the, in my great GSD at Harvard. And I, again, there are a handful of patterns that are very distinctive, straight lines, Squares sometimes, uh, but certainly rectangles, very abundant. Parallel lines, even smooth parallel curves, circles with radiating lines, and and so forth, a few others, uh, that you see over and over and over. And so I I put those up for the students to think about. And and then I say, um, well, those are two patterns on the land. And, And I... I take pictures. I used to take a lot more pictures out of airplane windows. In fact, my travel agent even knew she had on the computer when I was flying east or west and whether I'd be on the left side or the right side of the plane. And I'd have a window seat, not over a wing and away from the sun. She, she knew all this. I have pictures all around the world. And so I see these patterns in those pictures or in Landsat images or air photos. And, um, and there are a couple other interesting patterns but uh, that are sort of intermediate there. And so I asked the students, what are the advantages of these and what are the advantages and disadvantages of both of these? And it gets the students and it gets us all to think about what we're doing to the land and what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages. I could go on, but that maybe gives you a, f- a flavor for, for the kinds of things I see. Um, and, and, you know, I, we document a lot of these things in articles. You are listening to Terrograms, and our guest is Richard Foreman. Richard is a professor of advanced environmental studies in the field of landscape ecology at Harvard University. He is also the author of the new book entitled Urban Regions, Ecology and Planning Beyond the City, published by Cambridge University Press. Your global principles are, in a way, generic enough to be translated city to city. Do they need to be or should they be tested at a very small scale so that we can see immediate modes of implementation, you know, the scale of, for example, a bioswale? And how would a complementary body of research approach your, uh, your, your, your principles that you, you frame up in your new book? Uh, let me just say that the principles have been growing and evolving over in my mind over a, a number of years. So I actually published a book on the principles in 1996 with two colleagues, one from Norway and another from the States, called Landscape Ecology Principles for Landscape Architecture and Land Use Planning. 
And it's a very nice little book. It's very visual. It states principles of single sentences. And then what it does is it, in two diagrams, usually right after the principle, it illustrates how you would apply that principle on the land. And that's the core of the book, and a short, small book. Well, it sold 12,000 copies in English. It's got Chinese and, and Spanish editions. It's in its fourth printing, I believe. It could be. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and I just got uh, right right over here. The, I just got this week a Farsi edition. <laughs> and the translator of the University of Tehran said this is the first landscape ecology publication in Iran. And so um, I can't read what it says, <laughs> but it's I'm really pleased to see that uh, it's spreading. Anyway, so th- there were a group of principles. Then there's a larger group in the Barcelona, and then this book, and then this new book. There, there's still more. The bulk of those principles will work at any scale, so they work at work at a broad scale or a fine scale, and and that. That's one of the reasons I pick them. Mm-hmm. Now, not 100% of them. There are some that that are really most effective at once at a broader scale or a finer scale. But to answer your question, I would say that that and and again, this comes out of my science, and I've seen it hundreds of times or more. That if you start at a fine scale, if you start with a little piece of the land or a little piece of the world or a little piece of something. And you analyze that and and get really interested in it. You may most people will I've noticed most people will then start asking finer questions about what are the smaller things that give rise to these patterns at this scale. Some people will look at the same scale and say, well, here's a, a small piece. What are the other small pieces at the same scale? In other words, that they're competing with or collaborating with. Mm-hmm. Rather few people will say, say, well, here's a small piece. How does it fit into the broader picture, the big picture? Mm-hmm. And it's just the way we, maybe human nature, I don't know, but, but certainly it's true in science and, and many other fields. And, and so my answer is that if you look at a small piece like a swale, that's great, and it's really important for society. But it would be better if you started broadly and then mm-hmm. at a broad scale or be the unusual person who can broaden out from that. So I would say start big. Think big. Well, often enough, the territory of influence that we have is quite small, and we need to think big to understand how it relates to its more regional context. But our final tools are restricted to uh, a property line. We're not often, or there isn't uh, regularly the occasion to make these bigger influences on on these regions. So I sort of think the issue of scale and and uh, ability to implement these bigger ideas at the micro scale uh, becomes a, a question that many landscape architects deal with on a project-to-project basis. Well, let me come at that two ways. The first way, it says, all right, think of the small park or the small whatever it is, and says, too often I see the boundary of that piece as being the boundary of the universe intellectually and in the in the product of the plan or design. And so one of the things I teach my students, and we talk about a lot, is context. Um, you know, I, I remember... Um, 
I remember being taught when I first came here what good design was. Uh, a leading architect taught me this. Um, uh, according to Vitruvius, it, in three principles that it uh, that it's inspirational and beautiful and so forth. And there's one and a second that it's um, that it's made of good materials and will persist. And thirdly, that it works. It works for society. It works socially. And my reaction was, oh, you missed the most important one. In fact, you missed the most imp- the two most important ones. And, of course, we then had a big discussion because I said context is, is as important. And what is the effect of the surroundings on that design? And what is the effect of the design on the surroundings? And so those two contexts, the, uh, sort of the opposite polarities of flows, is the way I look at a small piece a building or a park or whatever it is. What are the flows? What are the directions of the flows? What's the intensity of the flows? And and what are the, coming in and going out? And so I think it's only in that context that we're going to have wise design. I think that drawing a, a boundary around a, a site that that is somewhat impermeable is, is, is not a good foundation for planning and design. The other way I would answer the question, I guess, is that it goes back to to my think big. That I think it's going to be it's going to more likely be that landscape architects will and and others involved are going to have more influence and are going to have a bigger impact if they can think big or when they can think big. They can't always. You're absolutely right. But I think they should always push that envelope and say to the client, uh, we need to take a bigger spatial look at this thing. And I feel that uh, landscape architecture does have a lot of the tools that could be an important player in the lands at a broader scale, in the big picture, in sprawl, in urban development, in um, agricultural development and forestry development. I, I think landscape architects, some do. There are some people, landscape architects, and I know a number of them, that are very good ones, who do automatically think of these large areas. And I think increasingly the field is either going to step forward and say, we are major players in the large areas, or it's not going to, and somebody else is. And I already see my field of ecology and conservation and so on beginning to step up to the plate and say, hey, we can plan that. Mm -hmm. I mean, why was I, an ecologist, invited to do a plan for Barcelona's region, which, you know, it's a magical city. It's a famous city. It's a a wonderful place. Um, I won't answer the question. Who's, Who's making a difference today? Well, my goal is not to pinpoint <laughs> colleagues. It's just not my, my not my field. I told you I'm not going to be a second class landscape architect. I mean, I'm impressed with people like Loriola. I'm impressed with the broad work that Grant Jones has done. Uh, you know, Christina Hill is, has a really broad vision. Uh, Joan Nassauer. I mean, there. I, I probably could name. Um, Fifteen people. It reminds me of one long ago when my two of my kids were young, and they asked me if I could name ten rock bands. Mm-hmm. And of course, they knew I couldn't, and I did. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I do think that that especially in the younger generation, there's a there's a lot of hope 
I feel that the increasingly there are people who are looking at these big picture landscape architects that, that are in school and just out of out of their MLAs that are saying, look, we can have an effect. We are going to push this envelope at broader scales, and we're not always going to be looking at little pieces that we are sometimes. Have we, in the recent past, have we put this pool of people together, or do we need to in the next couple of years in a format of a conference or a seminar? Well, both of the both of the above it certainly would be good to bring bring them together. There was a um, conference and a book that um, Christina Hill and Bert, Bart Johnson published called I forget the title, Design and Nature or something like that. Um, I have an article in there. But they they brought in a, a, an array of people, not just landscape architects, but they did bring many good L.A.s. Uh, but they also brought uh, brought some artists and, and uh, thinkers and scientists uh, to get to, to that. And so you would see a lot of the key names in that book. Mm-hmm. It seems as though you would make a very good component to a bigger project team are you asked to collaborate and if so are you available for collaboration (laughs) (laughs) um well i'm a scholar at heart and um so i i I think i've only consulted in a serious way uh, two or three times and and the, the largest was that one for the barcelona group I did consult for the president of Costa Rica and the minister of natural resources and energy uh, some years ago on some projects of dams and and, and biodiversity reserves and um, some development. And way back, I remember consulting for Alcoa in, in Australia <laughs> one time on some mining issues. But... But I think the way I'd like to answer it is, as a scholar, I'm interested in consulting where I see a new idea or a new promising approach that could be implemented and highlighted for society. So we learn from it. So it's not just doing one project, but there's a significant a potential for a significant ripple effect. Those are the kinds of things that interest me. I mean, I'm an idea person. And I am an envelope-pushing person <laughs> um, very much. And so I have a message right here on my desk uh, that I received yesterday uh, from uh, a person who is uh, in the planning department of a major city. And... The person says that we want to have a conference on green infrastructure, and they're going to bring people from all over together, which there's nothing special about that. There are lots of conferences like that. But he puts it in the context of this city having very rapid urbanization. In fact, his whole country having very rapid urbanization. And the importance of doing something intelligent, doing something wise, at the broad land scale. And so I don't know if anything will ever happen. You know, I'll probably go and give a talk and I'll meet a lot of people. But but I see that as the kind of thing that's going to be happening more and more. 
that people are going to see that this landscape ecology now works really effective in transportation planning. It works really well in urban regions, and it really works well in forestry and wildlife management and, and some other field, agriculture. So I think the power of this underlying landscape ecological approach is engaging more and more people. So uh, it would be wonderful if that person did was able to do it for his own city or, or own region, or maybe I'll go help him, or, or I don't know. Maybe there will be 100 more of those that will come up in the next year. What are the biggest blocks or hurdles cities are facing in trying to implement a healthy strategic plan of growth? Well, the, certainly the balkanization of, of jurisdictions, um, you know, towns and municipalities and, and the central city itself, but all the jurisdictions around it, that implementation is very difficult. Now, that varies uh, according to culture and, and, and geography. Um, I'll take an extreme case. Be- the Beijing municipal government essentially is the only government for the entire region, about 100 kilometers in radius. So in one sense, it's very easy to make a decision. Mm-hmm. One government makes a decision. This is the way it is. Now, there are really sig- significant pros and cons to that. <laughs> uh, there aren't too many other places like that. Maybe maybe Brisbane, Australia. Maybe there are a few others. But And then at the other side is... Um, at the other extreme, you might say, is a case, um, and I won't nominate places, but a case where people say, well, every stakeholder must be at the table for every decision. Well, to me, the stakeholder approach, where you have all stakeholders, is a prescription for inactivity or minimalism or doing doing nothing. Uh, because if you get enough stakeholders and you want to implement this, concerns of all of them, then at best you only have incremental change, Mm -hmm. and often you have very little change. And so the question in my mind is, where's the happy medium? In other words, can can you have the dictatorial approach or, or a single government approach to be effective in the long run? Probably not. Can you have the multiple stakeholders approach be effective in the long run? Probably only in exceptional cases. And so I would think maybe somewhere where there'd be a, a, a small number of key stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And in the case of your question, there might be a, some finite number of mayors of the surrounding jurisdictions, and they get together and, and say, yeah, we see we're all in this boat together. It's the same sandbox. Let's design our sandbox so it makes good sense for the future. Mm-hmm. And they see common interests. And to me, the region or the landscape is the scale, the broad landscape, is the scale which that could happen. Let, let me add to my, what I say. Your question of um, uh, what are the significant shortcomings of, of plan, planning and design at this broad scale. Another thing I would say is, is in a, I'd say intellectual or, or uh, is uh, let me just call it inertia. It is inertia, and, and that is that when people think of large areas, some people just throw up their hands and say that's too big, it's too complicated, can't deal with that. The other people who, who say, oh no, we can deal with that, go for it. So of course that's the second group that interests me. And but the inertia aspect that that underlies what's done is that that 
economic development, housing, jobs, and transportation are sort of the big four, the things that we do when we think regionally. And, and I think that that's missing the point. And, uh, and it's, and, and I don't blame any of the people because that's the way it is. Um, uh, they, they were all programmed that way. And, and that's why I think the, those folks over there in Barcelona were so perceptive. I mean, in a cute way, they say, we don't want American sprawl. But that, that was just a cute way of putting it. But they really wanted, they wanted their aquifers to be protected for the long term. They wanted their food production, local food product, the market farm, market gardening, so that at 4 a.m. there are 100, 200 panel trucks filling up with fresh strawberries and artichokes and all these things <laughs> and carry them into the narrow streets of the city so that every market and every restaurant has fresh vegetables and fresh fruits. And so they wanted that to continue. And, and, and I think that putting natural systems, I'll use that broad word again, which includes all these these characteristics I've been talking about, putting natural systems right up there parallel with economic development, transportation, employment, and, and housing is absolutely central. And as long as we're, the inertia carries us to the traditional things that planners do at broad scales, I don't think we'll ever get it to any mm-hmm. sort of a sustainable future. One of the difficulties of adding natural systems to the list of housing, jobs, transportation, economic development may be that natural systems don't inherently have any great value for many individuals. Um, However, when you begin to mention aquifer protection, drinking water, or food protection, suddenly the, the value becomes more directly related. Are there any other landscapes that you see endangered um, which uh, are at the equal importance of our aquifer or our, our productive landscape? And how do, we, how do we give them more attention, more recognition? Let me just add recreation to your, your list there. Um, the, again, the, the Spanish group didn't, didn't want to lose their water supply because if they did, there was a big economic cost of bringing water from another watershed, interbasin inter, basin transfer, which is a, which is a problem, and they didn't want to do that. And let me take your recre- take recreation as an example. If one day recreation and tourism for the citizens of the city, if you can go out to a, a lot of parks and, and places and you can take a tr- public transport or you can drive uh, one hour or, or two hours out and take your family out and, and spend your Saturday in, in a productive way, that's fine. If you're going to have to drive three hours or more, it's no longer one-day recreation. It's no longer serving the people of your city. So if you have developed out so far that you're, you have prevented your citizens from getting the clean air and seeing what nature looks like and, and so forth, then that's money. I mean, that's, that's economics. Um, Do you think the natural system needs to be quantified yeah. in an economic way in order to find tools to protect it? I think that that's helpful to to some people, to economists, to some of the public, to simply talk about ecosystem services. How much is having a woods of value for recreation? How much is a value for protecting water? And so, on. 
I think that is that is desirable, but I don't think that's the final answer. I think if you if you boil a forest down to dollars and cents or yen or, or marks or euros, I, I think you miss a lot of interesting things and uh, from inspiration and, 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 you know, the things, aesthetics that, that landscape architects and others are concerned with and the public. So I wouldn't carry that too far. I think it's useful, but I wouldn't say that's the beginning and end of the world. Let me go back to your question of what, what areas are really threatened and are most need, in need of concern. And, and I think the, first, the top one I'd put on my list are large areas of natural vegetation, what I call emeralds. And I use that term because an emerald is in some ways the most important thing uh, you know, the most important green thing that, that exists. And so uh, these large natural areas uh, are the emeralds. Now, they are the most threatened. When humans move into an area, the, the, they are lost first. In other words, they are cut to, into small pieces, mm-hmm. and they are no longer as valuable. So there's a big loss when you take a big green area and you break it down into a number of small areas. And that loss has to do with protecting an aquifer under it. And if you turn it into a bunch of small areas, then there's swimming pool chlorine, there's uh, hydrocarbons, there are heavy metals and things that, that get down in the aquifer and except in limestone areas, water moves and pollutants move very slowly in an aquifer. They just stay there. And it's very hard to clean up an aquifer. So, so you can protect an aquifer with a large green plant. You can protect lake, uh, lake. The whole lake with the with the water coming in to the lake. Um, you can provide lots of interesting recreation in a large forest area. On and on. I mean, that's, these are things that, that we teach about right, routinely: the ecological and the human benefits of large natural patches. So I would say, in in any design and plan, almost any design and plan, identifying the large natural areas or the potentially large emeralds and highlighting them right up front would be the most important thing you could do uh, for natural systems and their human uses for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, now, once you get past that, which stands by itself, it's really an emerald. The second thing I would say is protecting the uh, the floodplain riparian zone along major streams in, in your landscape or in your region. And, and they're, again, they're... they're 15 to 20 really important reasons you do that. Mm-hmm. And they're all well documented, and, and some good landscape architects could list them for you very easily. Mm-hmm. Those, to me, are the most important there. Now, once I get past that, I think I would mention some connectivity among the large emeralds to turn them into an emerald network, not an emerald necklace, <laughs> but an emerald network where you're, in a sense, you've got these emeralds, these large green areas with multiple values, and you connect them. And they, you connect them for people walking and for wildlife movement there, and in some cases for water movement. So those are the things that are most in threat, and, and all of them are central to any uh, idea of, of planning and landscape, landscape architecture that is, is trying to mesh the natural world with the, the art, artifice, the, the human design world. You've been making a difference through your scholarship, also through some consultation with cities. 
how else uh, are you trying to make a difference? I know, know that you're a founding vice president for the International Association for Landscape Ecology, a vice president on the Ecological Society of America. How is your participation in associations, uh, how does that fit within your understanding of your role in the field? Well, I try try to remain active professionally with professional organizations, and I serve on the boards of some uh, conservation organizations, leading conservation organizations, and I go to meetings and present papers. I present keynote addresses at meetings uh, frequently, and so this is a way of bringing these ideas and this scholarship in a sense, to the world. I'm a very international person. I've lived in perhaps 10 countries and three continents. And and so I, I and when I write, I write something, I think about how that would translate into the British world, that is of Australia and Britain and South Africa and so on. I think how, what kind of words they would they use. I think about how the French would think about that. I've lived in France. I think about how the Spanish, I think about how the Chinese and the Japanese think about it. I believe these ideas are really important, the landscape ecology, the road ecology, the urban region ecology. And as anybody who's passionate, uh, you want more people to become exposed to the ideas and uh, to read them. So I'm delighted that, that these books are, you know, that, that book that, that they wanted me to use, uh, the Land Mosaics book published in 95, Cambridge University Press, so... Uh, that's also has sold some eleven thousand, maybe twelve thousand copies, and, and so the and the road ecology book that I wrote uh, collaborated with. By the way, I do collaborate in scholarship. I, I probably I probably had co-authors. I probably had a hundred co-authors. I've never counted them on my articles over the years and, and my books. Uh, I've written. Let me think. The, the, with a with a. Norwegian woman with a French man with a Dutchman uh, with a Canadian woman and a Canadian man and maybe more um, and I worked in Spain of course uh, so uh, this is a part of of giving these ideas uh, dispersed widely and, and I I just feel that's that's the way to go what are your new projects I teach a course in urban and suburban ecology here at Harvard and I have for many years, um, and probably 15 years on and off. So I'm doing some writing in that area. That The, the Urban Regions Project was really beyond the city, and that's in the title, actually. Um, and and it also that the Urban Regions tried to talk with, have a dialogue, a conversation with urban planners, this current writing I'm doing in urban ecology is um, is in and out of the city. So it's the ecology in the city as well in the metropolitan area, all built metropolitan area, but as well as in, in satellite cities and towns and other built areas. So uh, that's one thing I'm doing, and and there I can become much more scientific and can, in a sense, reveal the rich array of, science, of ecological and related principles and data and, and evidence, let's say, for all kinds of users, from landscape architects and urban planners to engineers and, and uh, social scientists of various sorts. Uh, 
So that's one thing. Will, will the city satellite city town be generic, or are you uh, yes basing it in place? No, no. These will be principles, mm-hmm. principles that work in the city. That is, principles relating to um, to water flow, hydrology, water quality, uh, fish, aquatic ecosystems, erosion, sedimentation, biodiversity, wildlife movement. Um, plant the vegetation structure and and things like that in the city uh, and out of the city and, and in a sense it, you know I, I just like to push envelopes mm-hmm. and um, so the road ecology science and solutions book was the first book first comprehensive book on road systems on the eco- ecology and road systems and um, and Working with the transportation community as, as co-authors and reviewers and all kinds of ways, uh, it's just having a really big impact. And the transportation community is using it all the time. So in this book, I'm, I'm going to provide this science that other people can then use and, and, and make it space, space-based. Let, let me just finish one other. I have one other project, which is a bizarre project. Uh, I don't need to talk about here, but I, I have this long, well, it's about seven years, maybe six, seven years. Uh, it's, I call it a remote spot project, and I go to remote spots, and that means as far from roads and vehicles as I can get. Mm. And I've done this in the American West. I've done it in the city of Chicago. I've done it in the most remote spot in, in Britain, and pilgrimage area in Spain, a big desert of Australia, actually the desert of, of Europe. Um, all kinds of interesting places uh, around the world. And, and um, so what I'm doing is uh, talking about describing what it's like if you get out of your, get away from your umbilical cord, the car, and strike off right angles to the road, what it's like 10 meters or 100 meters or a kilometer or 25 miles, what it's like there. And I, not only what it's like in ter- physical thing, as a scientist might do it, and, Terms of wildlife and trash and noise and what have you, but but also my feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I record how my feelings change of fear and worry and beauty and exhilaration is there, and fatigue. Is, is there a, uh, somewhat of a parallel between this and the work of John Stilgo or J.B. Jackson? <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to speculate on that. <laughs> Jackson was a very, very inspirational person, as you know. But not, I, I, this is this re- emerges from my road ecology work, and and is for scholars and as well as the public. Ironically, it's very far from the road. Well, it's got a lot of road implications to it and, and vehicles and so on. And, um. <laughs> In the chronology of your books, it seems as though the road ecology book is the book that took you from the mosaics and, say, the Pine Barrens into the city. Is there a strange relationship uh, between the road as conduit from um, these more remote places to the more urbanized? urbanized places? I'll tell you why I got interested in the road ecology. A number of reasons. I was put on a National Research Council uh, committee to study the future of transportation in the United States in a context of sustainable environment. And it was with a group of very bright engineers, very bright uh, economists, 
uh, a few policymakers, a few atmospheric scientists, and I was the ecologist. And so, you know, we wrote a, a, natural, a National Research Council, National Academy of Science book on the subject, um, and then I took off from there and have done my work since. Uh, the other reason was that for many years I had been doing landscape ecology. That is the ecology of large areas, what you see in a Landsat image or out an airplane window. And and I kind of knew all about them I, I, and I, all around the world. And one day, here right in this office with two students from here at Harvard, I was looking at an image from somewhere, and there was a road network in the middle of this image, and all of a sudden it struck me that I knew all about these forests and those fields and these woods and these villages, and I knew almost nothing about the ecology of those roads, and yet arguably it was the most conspicuous thing in the landscape. And that's the kind of thing that really bugs me and challenges me and makes me dig deeply and, and, and go on a tear. And so that's that's what got me going on that. that uh, so I said, well, look, we've got to know about the ecology of, of vehicles, the ecological implications. We've got to know about the ecology of the, of the infrastructure. And so I've been on a tear ever since. <laughs> Do you think we'll ever see your personal photos from the aircraft? Do you think we'll ever see them in a book? Or maybe posted online or made available to... Well, I I use them in my books in, in small ways. Um, that is, they're in. I mean, a lot of them aren't very good. <laughs> I'm not a professional, and as you know, put, put images don't come out usually very well in the haze that you fly through. But I use them. I use them in my books periodically. A few. <laughs> before I before we close, is there anything anything that we may have missed that you'd like to talk about or mention? <laughs> So I love to teach. I, I just the students are just a joy to me. Night before last, I was at the Levinson dinner for uh, as a finalist candidate for the out, uh, outstanding teacher in in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. I mm-hmm. teach one course in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and and this is the third time in thirteen years that I've been a nominee for this award, which is not even in my school. It's only because I teach in, the, in one course over there. Um, and I actually won a national award many years ago for teaching. And so teaching is how I spend more of my time than anything else as a, as a professor. And so I, I started teaching in Latin America. I started teaching in, in Central America, um, agricultural students from around all across North America, uh, Latin America. And I, I, like landscapes that I've never seen, that is a new distinctive landscape is something that always turns me on, um, something I haven't experienced. So that maybe is another way of saying that it's a it's a joy to be able to to do what I most enjoy doing here at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, and, and to be able to interact with the students and a lot of bright people across many disciplines. So um, I suppose I'll keep doing that for a long time. How do your students affect your work? The uh, well, the students uh, challenge me all the time, and um, but they give me ideas too, and then I turn those back to them often, and we have big discussions about so many of these ideas. So um, I always give lots of credit to my students, and I publish with many of them. In fact, right here on the shelf, there are a whole lot of articles mm-hmm. that I've published, and probably. 
two-thirds of them or more have, have are co-authored with mm-hmm. students. But that's nothing new. You know, teachers and, and students are, are uh, interlocked in a great positive feedback system there. So. Well, it's been a, a really wonderful, enriching discussion. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom. Um, we look forward to your new book entitled Urban Regions, Ecology and Planning Beyond the City. And best of luck with your future projects. Thank you very much. There'll be many. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on a roll. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Richard Foreman is a professor of advanced environmental studies in the field of landscape ecology at Harvard University. Thank you for joining us for the 13th Dispatch of Terrograms. Join us next time for a conversation with Chris Reed of Studio Stoss Landscape Urbanism. To find out more about Terrograms and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terrograms.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. I'm Craig Verzone, and this concludes the 13th delivery of Terrograms. Calling me at night, all hours of the night, calling my husband, my brother, calling me every day. He's after me, and I, I was devastated. I was without a job, without a salary. I, I was trying to get unemployment, and I was told it first kicks in after a few weeks. And I was busy looking for another job, and I also have a heart condition. And I told him I have a heart condition. I said, here, take a, a few dollars. I'm sorry this happened to you, just but just leave me alone. I'm not the person. Who, who deposited us? <laughs>